Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to train leaders, develop community organising strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about building strong relationships and solving problems? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for two young relationship organisers in Queensland and in Melbourne. Your responsibilities will include providing an exceptional service to union members and union clients by connecting them to the best legal staff across Morris Blackburn's practice areas. The roles are based in Melbourne and in Queensland and to apply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Be part of the change and fight for fair. Apply now. Hello and welcome to our special International Women's Day episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week, uh, on this week's episode, we're handing the microphone over to three... Uh, women leaders in their respective fields. Liberty Sanger is the National Head of Personal Injury Law Division at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Julia Fox is the National Assistant Secretary of the SDA Union, the union that represents retail, fast food and warehousing workers. And Natalie Hutchins MP, the Victorian MP for Victim Support, Crime Prevention, Corrections and Youth Justice. And they today are going to touch on workplace culture, sexual harassment and bullying, a highly topical issue given the current climate in Canberra, the gender pay gap and the impact of COVID-19 on Australian women in the workforce. Uh, It's a critically important issue and uh, we're very, very proud to hand over the microphone uh, to uh, Liberty, Nat and Julia for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or Amazon. And if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and give us a review. A positive review, of course, but a review nonetheless. And for all the updates, just follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Now let's get to today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this International Women's Day special edition of Socially Democratic. I'm Liberty Sanger, lawyer from Morris Blackburn and head of the Personal Injury Law Division. I am joined today by two of my fabulous feminist friends, Natalie Hutchins, who's well known to you, uh, Minister for Victim Support, Crime Prevention Corrections, and previously uh, Minister for Women, uh, and fellow Latrobe Labor Club alumni. And also joined by Julia Fox, the National Assistant Secretary of the SDA, the union that represents uh, uh, retail, fast food and warehousing workers. Hi, Julia. Hi, Liberty. How are you? Very very well. Uh, So there's a lot to talk about today. Um, We've heard a lot in recent times about uh, issues of uh, sexual harassment and gendered violence in the workplace. Uh, and we've heard a lot about culture. I thought culture would be a good place for us to start. Um, how do we change culture? Uh, and um, and what's what's the role that any one of us play in in changing it? Nat, if I start with you, um, you know, what are your reflections on what we've heard uh, about um, 
about sexual harassment and gendered violence in the workplace over the last month? And and what are your thoughts on how to change culture? Well, unfortunately, um, a workplace that isn't free from sexual harassment isn't a safe workplace. So really um, making sure that we've got the best protections and systems in place for women in the workplace is the one thing that we can do to make real change. And uh, unfortunately, there are too many workplaces out there um, where people don't know what, what the steps are that they need to take to report sexual harassment or discrimination. Um, and they face, I guess, both fear and intimidation uh, if they do report it. So normalising and changing that culture, um, having the assistance and knowing what the structures are to report, I think, is the, is the first step. And how do we actually do that? I mean, it's one thing to know your rights. I mean, I often talk to women, friends, uh, talk to clients who know their rights uh, and they know what shouldn't be happening in workplaces, but they're afraid that if they speak up that there are going to be consequences for them. How do we flip that so that uh, we see employers taking responsibility for the culture and the tone that they're setting in workplaces? I think um, just like safer workplaces um, to prevent injury or mental injury, we need to go down the same track with that. And that's um, almost like having authority through WorkSafe for inspections on this sort of behaviour. Um, mandatory reporting is another one, um, but also a, an education process for um, managers. I mean, this this is 101 um, type stuff that needs to be embedded in HR strategies. Um, whether that is then enforced in the workplace is, is another thing, but um, certainly by people knowing kind of what the rules of engagement are in terms of reporting sexual uh, discrimination or assault or harassment in any way, knowing um, what it is that they need to do to take action to stop that is the really important part. And Julia, what have you seen uh, in your uh, experiences? What what what's worked? Um, when when have you seen members uh, uh, bring claims forward and be dealt with professionally and respectfully? Uh, and what are some of the challenges? Um, I do think it's very much the tone and attitude and values that the organisation says they have, but they've got to live those values. And that is the challenge when you're talking about workplaces that we look after and represent members in, which are often really large employers. Um, and that is hard to translate down to kind of the shop floor about um, the attitudes and behaviours that are acceptable. So I think that is a challenge. We also have a lot of young workers. And I think um, what was really telling about some of the work we did with the Human Rights Commission about the prevalence of sexual harassment in our industry, if you asked a worker, um, had they experienced sexual harassment in the last 12 months? They said no. If you asked them if they'd experienced a range of behaviours, they ticked a lot of them, which is actually the definition of sexual harassment. So their own recognition or, or the understanding about what is sexual harassment, um, we still, I don't think, have a great um, level of understanding in the workplace. So you can do training and they often, a lot of our employers do training at the, at the shop floor level, but I don't think it's particularly good training. I don't think it's working. And uh, for a lot of our members who are under the age of 18, it's definitely not working. And the levels of sexual harassment that they're experiencing in workplaces is significant. Like it's, it's quite mind boggling how prevalent it is. Um, so I would actually say, and the reason we did the deeper dive into retail um, was 
in our sort of anecdotal experience, we think it's getting worse, not better, which mm. is really kind of challenging then about all the things that have been put in place, um, investigation processes. And, uh, and we also, interestingly, about five years, six years ago, we saw a shift where the employers actually had really robust, long processes and investigation policies, and they sort of stripped it back, which is a HR sort of thing at the time. Right. Sort of go from 15 pages, that's too big. Let's just go to a one pager and that should cover it off. And I reckon it corresponds with when that uh, we've actually seen a spike in behaviours of sexual harassment. So I think we need to go back to the boards of this country and they need to be accountable for sexual harassment in their workplaces. They're not at the moment. That's really interesting that you say that people don't know what sexual harassment is. That's my 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 thoughts too. And in fact, I mean, I'm sure all three of us can recount many a time when we've been um, uh, subject to casual sexism, you know, so-called jokes, um, seeing things in the workplace. And in certainly my experience is that we have to make a call each and every time about is this going to be the one that we bell the cat on or is this going to be the one that we walk past um, and you know every time I say that now I'm always conscious of that expression the standard you walk past is the standard you accept um, but sometimes I feel like if I'm if I if I don't walk past everything I see I'll never get anywhere like I've got to actually get somewhere to make a change but it is as you say Julia it's so so prevalent um, so how do we how do we marry those concepts up how do we how do we make sure everyone really knows what sexual harassment is. I mean, as you say, training hasn't worked. Uh, so, so what does work? Well, I honestly think conversations in the workplace um, is going to help and how do you initiate that? Um, sometimes it is through training um, because you give people the opportunity to, to stop and, and have those conversations. I was really um, taken aback recently to hear my mum 20 years ago when she worked at Telstra telling me about some ongoing um, sexual harassment that she experienced, which then kind of exploded into a, an episode at the Christmas party where um, a couple of men that constantly made derogatory comments to the women working there overstepped the line at the Christmas party and um, she said she was very, very thankful to have um, a senior manage, manager step in and um, ask those men to leave the party. Uh, and, you know, you just you just assume that your own experiences are uh, how you kind of shape things. And then when you think about the generations of women before, um, that this mm. isn't a new thing, um, that this has been going on since uh, day dot, it is a major cultural change. Um, but I think, to be honest, having more women in the workplace, more women in senior roles, that makes all the difference. Um, back in those days, 20 years ago, you know, my mum was telling me there wasn't a single female manager in her workplace. So oh. that, you know, may be the difference that we have today of where we're making real change is to now it's time to have the conversations um, and, and, and really weed out what is and isn't acceptable uh, in our workplaces um, and in our communities. I mean, I, I see discrimination happening, unfortunately, in local sports clubs as well in volunteer roles. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it takes, you know, I think sometimes women in leadership roles, you know, some women think that they need to conform to what um, 
has been the way things are rather than change it. And then true leadership is taking on that cultural change and really challenging it. And I've seen some wonderful women in, in our local sports clubs and in the workplace make that change and really step up. And I think um, for me, it's there's no one silver bullet. I mean, training needs to be a part of it, but it needs to be good training to your point, Julia. And, um, you know, uh, but if it's if it's not good training, I'd still take that over nothing. But when I think about this as a, just a workplace safety issue and what we do with other uh, hazards in the workplace and how we address those, you know, we've got a good framework with our OHS laws, um, it's strong engagement with our workforce uh, to make sure that everyone's talking about what the risks are, are thinking proactively about what the strategies are to stop injuries from happening, everyone knowing what to do if um, something does happen, where to report. And as you say, Nat, bringing in WorkSafe if it's at a particular level of severity and WorkSafe to take over if it's really bad. Um, you know, it seems to me that we've had a framework that we could use um, for preventing and for preventing sexual harassment and then supporting uh, victims of sexual harassment that's been uh, greatly underutilised. I think that's interesting for us to reflect on on International Women's Day as well, because I think that's because we've thought about OHS as something that helps blue collar um, and mostly male workers. And, and uh, preventing and addressing injuries uh, that have arisen from uh, those environments, so physical injuries. We haven't thought about it as something or framework that can assist with sexual harassment. That's been left as a separate kind of thing that happens in the workplace and, you know, sort of unique investigations undertaken by HR rather than um, dealt with by a safety or, or risk uh, part of the business. Um, Again, I don't think there's a silver bullet there, but I think it's part of setting the tone. And as you say, Julia, making sure that boards are really engaged with this issue. I mean, let's make it something that has to be reported up to the board, that they know that they're going to be uh, asked to report on externally. I think this idea of mandatory reporting is really interesting too. Um, I'll come back to that. But Julia, I can see that you had something to say, actually. Oh, so let's go I to you. I think it's, uh, it's really interesting that it's come through uh, finally in the work health and safety jurisdiction, because I think it's a sign of how, in our experience, when a member comes to you and says they've been sexually harassed and you're the union official trying to support them through that, the jurisdictions that are available to them do not work, right? They, they're slow, really slow. Uh, the outcomes are really poor. And it's a very individual model. Um, and I think the work health and safety model is a collective model. The workplace, the workplace is not um, is not a safe one because there is uh, sexual harassment and um, and usually bullying as well. And so it gives people an opportunity to not uh, to work to be together collectively to say this workplace is the problem and this is what we need to do to fix it, instead of the individual having to take on all that pressure just to get an outcome that might be $2,000, like they're appalling outcomes in this jurisdiction. So I think it's it's really good to see that shift into the work health and safety space. Um, I do sometimes, you know, having also deal with um, employers on work health and safety, the risk framework um, can't be a tick and flick. So we, we still mm. have to work pretty hard yeah. on making sure that it doesn't just become a, we have agreed and it equals this and therefore yes. that. So that, that is sometimes the experience of um, the compliance side of work health and safety, but it, it should be much more of a conversation side about how a workplace is or isn't safe. 
um, and reporting up the line hopefully will be better in a work health and safety framework with, yes. with the reporting element. When you've touched on another pet um, hate of mine, which is that, you know, if you're going to be a director in this company, it's an active job and you can't just sort of be um, sitting in your ivory tower receiving reports. You've got to make sure that what's what you're being told matches what's going on on the ground. Yeah. And if you're a good CEO and if you're a good executive, you'll make sure that that's accurate. You won't just be trying to fudge the numbers upwards and, and not pay any attention to what's going on underneath. Liv, um, just before we move off culture, can I just um, raise an example? I was in Taiwan 18 months ago and I was just bowled over by this amazing advertising campaign the Taiwanese government had around um, sexual harassment in the workplace. And um, basically they had done a logo um, of a woman's like a torso stomach with a hand around it, like a male hand around the stomach with another hand slapping that hand away. So it was an image of uh, trying to capture workplace sexual harassment and what wouldn't be tolerated. And then it just had a byline, sexual harassment won't be tolerated in this workplace and um, or in this place. And uh, they had the government gives every single business down to the local 7-Eleven an iPad issued um, by the government with the latest ads that they're running. And so that ad was on the bench at every counter, in every shop, in every hotel with that message and a little video playing behind it. Then when you look down the street, every single bus stop had that logo um, on it. And apparently this is how they run their campaigns over there and they run them for three months solid and they'll do it in conjunction with new legislation. So and they have discussion engagements online facilitated by the government um, as well. So it was an amazing um, an amazing campaign to be there to see. Um, and I was there on other business, but I became obsessed with finding out more about this campaign and, and it was just so in your face. And that's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, real culture change. Mm, just saturation of the message. Yeah. And, I mean, it's. It, I think the challenge for us is um, not only that, and, Julia, you, you so touched on such a good point there about people don't even know what sexual harassment is. We've just become so used to a whole lot of behaviours uh, occurring. But then once they report it, they've got to know that it's going to go somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of work that we've, we've got to do about how to normalise that um, because I, I agree, Julia, when we can just make it a workplace issue rather than having to be victim-led, we're going to get so much more change to, um, to culture and to preventing this uh, terrible yeah. thing from occurring. Um, I did want to ask you both what your thoughts are on, um, on mandatory reporting because I've, I've heard... Uh, both sides of the argument, and um, uh, and so I know you both know I've been asked to chair a task force on sexual harassment in the workplace uh, by the uh, Andrews government, uh, and this will be something that we consider. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, the I guess the argument against mandatory reporting is that uh, it might make people less willing to come forward uh, with allegations of sexual harassment. It might lead um, employers to try and stop formal reporting of sexual harassment and the argument in favour of mandatory reporting is that uh, it will force transparency onto companies and you know they're going to have to uh, deal with the consequences of reporting the number of incidents of uh, sexual harassment. 
where do you two sit when it comes to thinking about mandatory reporting or are you still reflecting yourself on where the right place to land is? Uh, for us, um, we have been exploring this, the issue around um, our obligations regarding mandatory reporting again because so many of our members are minors um, and under the age of 18. And mm. when we've searched around to try to find what the actual obligations are, it appears that the Northern Territory is the only place we have a mandatory reporting obligation regarding sexual harassment. It's a really challenging one um, and one we've been trying to explore uh, just to see, again, what our own view is about um, when our members come to us or, or they're 15, do we are we required to tell their parents? Um, mm. That that in itself, I mean, if, if you take a 15-year-old to the doctor, the doctor's not required to tell the parents. Like So it's really, yeah, it's not easy. Um, I haven't sort of fully formed my views on that because I probably lean towards uh, it will probably discourage. They'll find a way to make sure people don't report mm. just from my experience in workplaces. So I think that is something you'd have to be very comfortable in the knowledge that you have that element sorted. Um, mm. Mm. But it's really interesting because, again, we have so many members under the age of 18 in workplaces experience sexual harassment. How do we? And then if they report, what's the outcome? That, that's the other part. You've got to have the outcome that's uh, clearly visible and actually occurs for them. So if you, prom if you just have the reporting function but you don't have a fix at the other side, then you've, you know, it has to be the whole continuum from yeah. reporting to outcome for change. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think that's a really important uh, point, Julia, and that's, you know, making sure that we've got the front end um, support for people to report and um, really, I, I guess, a cultural campaign to stop sexual harassment from happening in the first place and really focused on prevention. But you absolutely need the accountability whether that comes in the form of mandatory reporting or not, it, there just needs to be a very high standard set um, where there is some liability on the employer to have to report. I think that's the only way it's going to change. Otherwise, you end up with a situation as extreme as what we've seen happen in federal parliament in Canberra where you have, um, you know, an offender that not just offended once but multiple times um, and the employer didn't take the appropriate action. And mm, that's, mm. you know, you can't allow that to continue in workplaces. You just can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very attracted to the, uh, well, to everything I think I've learned over my time, both as a lawyer, as an activist um, in the Labor Party, about uh, the benefits that transparency can bring. Um, you know, it's just when when things are, able to be hidden, um, and they still can be, as we all know, with laws, but when things are able to be hidden, it's more likely that um, bad things are going to happen. But when everything's forced out into the open and the standards are clear, you're less likely to see the bad behaviour. Um, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. There are other um, injuries that happen at work that are required to be reported. I mean, obviously, deaths are required to be reported, but other serious injuries. And so it'll be a question of um, does should does and should sexual sexual harassment fall into that same category? Um, there'll be more to come on that. I'll be interested to hear uh, what all the listeners think about that uh, too. If you can just on that liberty, um, you know, for us dealing with the um, sexual assaults in the workplace, um, both from um, colleagues but also customers, that should, in my mind, be something that's required to be reported as a serious reportable 
incident mm, um, because mm. it's sexual assault and it's happening that we we have quite a few sexual assaults we have rapes we have um quite a, a number of unfortunate that top level of incident and that to me should be a requirement that that goes straight as a reportable injury oh absolutely that's yeah. horrific but at the moment so, it's not <laughs> it's just you know i i don't really want to um move the conversation on from there because that's so horrific but um mm-hmm. uh, but I will ask a different question. Again, you know, if, if we accept that all of these um, these things that happen are an output of gender inequality, so, you know, it's a spectrum. We have our casual sexism at one end. Um, we have our sexual harassment. We have um, unequal pay. Uh, we have assaults, violence, and, and at worst, family violence. It all comes back to culture and it all comes back to how do we fix it. And we've got opportunities to have uh, a big influence over that in the workplace and you would hope that that um that has an impact outside of the workplace i just wanted to ask you both um, what your thoughts were on um affirmative action as a mechanism uh to bring about the kind of change that we uh we need to see in order to bring about diversity in workplaces uh i'm very uh, very much informed by what I've observed with the ALPs, AA policy. Um, you know, uh, Natalie and I were together there back in 1994, um, being invited in to participate in those debates and discussions. And I have to say, Nat, when I reflect now on my time uh, being pulled in by um, Joan Kerner, Marsha Thompson, uh, Mary Gillette, Monica Gould, amongst others, um, uh, to participate in in those debates, I did not appreciate the significance of what I was being invited in to both be a part of and to be a witness to. Uh, and I think back now, and really to that point, I had an academic understanding of discrimination, but I hadn't really felt it. I, I certainly hadn't felt my gender was an issue at school. I, I went through co-ed um, state schools. I hadn't really felt it. Uh, at university or student politics or a lot of debates and discussions in student politics about yeah. this. Um, and you, like me, were a leader in student politics. So, so, uh, you know, I didn't feel it there. Um, and that's when we were participating in these debates. And then I arrive in the real world and I, you know, smash my head straight against a brick wall as I am, am trying to interpret all these weird signals, in my case, mostly down at... Um, the courts and mostly from uh, my dear friends at, at the bar, uh, but, you know, like, you know, lunches I wasn't being invited to, comments that were being made, walking into rooms that were all men. I was the most junior uh, and, you know, and even the tasks that you're doing as a junior lawyer are the most menial, but you sort of feel like oh, this feels like it's being amplified because of my gender. Uh, you know, and so then I'm really aware of it. And you fast forward and, and uh, you become a parent and you become aware of that again. Um, and in my case, because I, um, I didn't become a parent at the same time as many of my girlfriends, I also got to observe what happens when you are promoted at the same pace as many of the men and also then the conversations that happen on that side. Anyway, that's a big, um, big uh, uh, kind of framing of this question. But I can now look back and, and see what an extraordinary impact that policy, that AA policy had on changing the composition of Australian parliaments uh, and the profound impact, in my view, that has had on the discussions which has, has have happened in parliaments. And I dare say 
um, even the, the things I've been in, the, invited in to be a part of, um, and Natalie having invited me in to be a chair of the Equal Workplaces Advisory Council, uh, initiative of the Andrews government, and now this task force on sexual harassment. Um, you know, I really feel like that, um, that that path was set with the change that was brought about by AA. Uh, so I'd be interested in your thoughts about uh, AA, how it's worked in the Labor Party, and really um, your thoughts then on the importance of strategy uh, when it comes to changing the composition of workplaces and, um, and getting diversity into workplaces. Well, um, <laughs> which one of you would like to go first? I was going to say it's um, it's interesting. AA, um, some would say, oh, we've done that. Tick that off. Um, it hasn't no. been done. Um, and I think the contrast is so stark and evident when we watch what's going on in federal parliament. Yeah. Yep. It, you just, you think that that equals that. Like, it's just so clear to me that um, the importance of a, um, a diverse and a gender diverse um, parliament makes a significant impact and and just watching the Liberal Party so um, grapple with this is because they just don't have that understanding culturally and I think it is though um, unfortunate in terms of representations in Parliament Australia's gone backwards we haven't gone forward mm. so that that's the challenge still we have to face I think you're seeing boards move to 30 percent and there's some talk about 40 percent and I think those uh, we need to have those quotas and um put in place but I also think we need to challenge our um, our corporate institutions through other areas I'm really interested in gender metrics in investments for example and, and because we've seen the um, most recent COVID impact look very much at the male infrastructure model and the hard hat model when we're not looking at social and services infrastructure we're just obsessed with um, building a bridge I'm sort of really keen to see how we're encouraging our uh, through our investments, and you know, I'm a director on a super fund as well, and how are we encouraging our um, investments teams to look at their gender metrics um, and have a set of those when we talk about um, responsible and you know, responsible um, organizations and ESG? And I, I'm sort of sometimes the S in, and we talk about S uh, in the social part of ESG is about labor rights and the right to strike and things like that I'm like, okay what else is there what is there for gender how are we going to change the gender mm, metrics mm. so do we provide superannuation on parental leave do you provide 52 weeks paid parental leave what are you providing um uh, do you have a right to part-time work do you have uh, meaningful hours and all those things that are to me where some of um, the issues are still blocked in terms of um, accessibility and workforce participation of women and do you provide childcare subsidies? What what are you doing? Um, I think we need to challenge those. But to me, AA is is fundamental, and we can see a really good live example of that playing out in our federal parliament. Totally, I think the Conservatives have six women in their cabinet, and you just seeing them too. Yeah, if they lose Linda Reynolds, it, it, you know, it will be five. Um, and and just uh, see the difference of approach in the way they talk about Linda Reynolds versus they're talking about. Um, Christian, Christian Porter. Porter. It's really interesting to watch. Yeah, she's yeah. not tough enough for the job. Her mental health is a different version of that compared to Christian Porter's mental health. He can come back to his job, but she can't. She's a weakling now. I <laughs> think what? Like it's yeah. just really interesting to watch the narrative around her challenges and and his challenges. I find. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, AA has been an absolute crucial part of the Labor Party being what it is today, and that is both in federal and state parliament, we've almost got double the numbers um, 
than what the Liberal Nationals have got. And, you know, I was just so proud to see yesterday on International Women's Day Anthony Albanese's photo with all the female uh, federal lower house members and senators, and it's just so impressive to see that huge number of women. Uh, we're not far off 50%. Uh, we have set ourselves a target um, of 50% by, I think it's 2025. Um, so on a federal level, we're, we're tracking pretty well. Um, on, in Victoria, um, we're at 44%. The Lib Nats are at 28%, and it's just so stark in the House um, when you look around. And, of course, we've got a 50% cabinet um, of, of men and women split in cabinet. And I, I can't emphasise what the world of difference that makes. In the 1990s, late 1990s, I worked for a female minister and um, when she was taking policy to the cabinet table, she would say, I can't, I can't discuss that. It just won't get through um, when it was it had a gender lens put on it. And uh, to think that we, you know, there is no um, issues around gender that we can't take to the cabinet table now, which is that change in dynamic. And our male colleagues are just so open to talking about, you know, th th these issues of sexual harassment, um, of respect for women and, and the broader cultural change that needs to happen. And I think that's because there's 50% women sitting around a table and that makes the world of difference um, to, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really taught me that you need to have a strategy. It needs to be uh, openly and transparently shared with your organisation. Uh, you need to mark yourself against it and um, you need to take very deliberate steps uh, with the pathways in order to achieve it. So it's been really instructive on my thinking about how you go about changing culture to our discussion uh, in organisations. Uh, you can't just have a set of policies and send everyone off for training. Uh, yep. if, you've, if all of your leaders are men and um, they haven't had a life experience, it's going to mean that they get what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that sexual harassment does not happen to men. Um, we know from the Human Rights Commission report that it does. Uh, but it predominantly happens to women. And if you have another attribute, um, say, uh, youth that, Julia, you've already spoken of, or of LGBTQI, uh, disability, um, Indigenous Australia, it's more likely to happen to you. So these are things that we know, um, but we have this example uh, with AA about one of the things that you do to, to change the composition, and we know from our lived experience it changes culture, changes the conversation. There couldn't be, in my view, a more stark example than looking at how the conversation uh, is being had at the moment in Canberra uh, with the Labor Party versus the Liberal Party. Um, although, you know, to, to use another example um, um, that's also current in our minds is to look at the COVID response. Um, yeah. uh, you know, design. Policy design. Exactly right. Policy design if there's no women in the room. It's just, it's... It's startling that that's um, that it's acceptable that and and again they don't turn their mind to it and then when they're called out on it think what what you know we didn't deliberately go out and exclude women um, but because women aren't in the room they're not part of the conversation on a major area which is um, extensive policy design and they're so um, lacking in that area and that's where the policy designs that they are setting up now are going to just have huge implications for gender equality. We're going to go further backwards because of the policies they've put in place. Um, so, I, you know, I think gender lens on policy 
gender lens on expenditure, government expenditure, just they need to just start to do it. But I think it's really hard to, to Natalie's point, you can't, um, if you're not, if they're not in the room having those conversations, you can't do it on your own if you're one woman. You just can't. No. No. Yep. Or else you've sort of gently put your hand up. And as we went to earlier, you might do it on one occasion out of 10, but you won't do it the other nine because you don't have the voice and the opportunity to do it. So I think it's uh, so important that women start to say, well, how's that going to impact women? And, mm. and can I just jump back with affirmative action, whether it's on boards or in political parties, it is not easy to get that change. Like yeah. I don't mm. want anyone to think that you just snap your fingers and then the quota is in place. It's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of years of lobbying to get that change in place. And, you know, I always say I've still got scars from my battles around affirmative action uh, quotas within the Labor Party because there are a lot of people with self-interest, and I'm going to call it a lot of men with self-interest that say, oh, you're only pushing this agenda because you want to get a seat in Parliament. Um, well, you know, yeah. yes, we want seats at Parliament, seats on the boards, um, management positions, because we make up 50% of the population. <laughs> so, yes, we want equality. Well, and the, the pragmatic um, response also in, in a political context is it makes you more electable. Um, yep. You know, I, I've, I've heard conservative politicians, female politicians talk about the fact they know they've got this issue because the more that they are putting up candidates that only look like one part of the community, not the whole part of the community, the less electable they will become. Uh, and it's, you know, it's absolutely the case that because uh, we've got a diverse range of candidates and we've got um, diverse policies that, uh, that emerge from that, you have more electable political, a more electable political party. It's no different when you talk about corporates. You know, all the research shows that if you um, get diversity and inclusion right, uh, you will have a more profitable workplace. And, you know, it's, a, it's just common sense because people are going to be really inspired about the work that they're doing, the people that they're working for, and they'll want to try extra hard in order to, uh, to achieve the, the tasks that they've been given which will mean a more productive, happier workplace. It's, you know, I, I don't come at this from the point of view of trying to improve the lot of capital. I come at this from the point of view of trying to, do, you know, make the world a better place. But I've never understood how those that are very self-interested about making money don't get on board with this because it's a really obvious thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, I guess it goes back to your point, though, Nat, that um, power uh, is pretty slow to uh, to hand itself over and, you um, uh, it has been said to me that most of the time uh, you've got to take power off people. They, they rarely um, hand it over to you. So, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, it shows how power doesn't know what's in its own uh, economic self-interest. Um, just staying with COVID just for a moment, um, Julia, you talked about the, the policy response. I heard over the weekend the Grattan Institute talk about the triple whammy that the um, – that women suffered. So the industries that were most affected uh, were women-dominated industries, you know, hospitality, um, tourism, university sector, for example. Uh, then when it came to homeschooling, uh, women did the lion's share of that. And likewise, all the duties that uh, needed to be undertaken in the home, sort of having to be at home, amplified the number of hours that women were spending on, on work in the home. Uh, and then when it came to the uh, government initiatives, uh, women mostly missed out on those. Um, 
and so that has set women back. So, um, I mean, firstly, how mind-boggling is it? I'm perhaps just venting now. In the face of data, how mind-boggling is it that the response was not geared to addressing that? But secondly, um, what do we do uh, about making sure that we restore women at least to the point they were at before COVID? And, and then what else do we need to do uh, to keep uh, ensuring that we're, we're closing this gender disadvantage? Um, Nat, what, what are your thoughts about what governments should be doing right now in order to address the particular issues women have suffered through COVID? Um, I think employment obviously is the first thing that jumps to mind, but also having a social recovery approach um, to rebuild for the most vulnerable is um, is another um, approach as well. Um, there are a lot of uh, women out there who are for the first time facing unemployment and uh, have commitments in their lives that um, mean that they're really financially struggling. And I know, you know, we've always talked about, you know, we all know the figures around retirement and superannuation uh, for women is a bleak one. Um, this is going to do so much damage to that outcome as well, particularly because some of these women that are just so vulnerable at the moment are cashing in on their super, mm. um, which is going to put them in a really um, horrendous position when they retire. Um, so having those that additional, I guess, wraparound services, but also at the same time, obviously, having a focus on employment for women in the recovery um, from COVID and um, you know, yes, we are very focused in a, as a government on building um, and construction, but we are also putting our record investment into building social housing. And with that social housing will come ongoing jobs um, for some of the wraparound services. And I think that's an important role for both men and women ongoing. Um, but trying to get more women into the construction sector and, and the supply sector that you know, that feeds that is also very important. Um, so I, I'm really buoyed by the fact that um, we have a um, Minister for Employment who is really switched on around this. Jala Pulford is doing a great job um, with a really big focus on um, how we engage women uh, in our strategies and also the most vulnerable Victorians that mm. um, may not get a job um, through a mainstream kind of uh, advertising process. Yep, yep. Um, I was going to say, Liberty, I think um, it's just very clear that um, they just, this federal government just went with the 1980s recession playbook and uh, didn't bother to adapt it to current workforce. I know, right? Yeah, and I'm sure there's people in departments who could tell them this stuff um, because the information and the data is there. Uh, I think it's just, it's telling it's a mindset of this government to me that women's income and work is still an add-on or it's still like this mm. concept of pocket money and it just mm. adds a little bit to the household income um, that it's not really meaningful or actually their job and their career and their their livelihoods and mm. so I think that's still um, a very gendered kind of concept they have around um, women's work really or paid work. Um, I think like also the tax cuts were very gendered you know the outcome for those tax cuts and the next round in particular yeah we all going to the blokes um it's quite astounding workforce participation changes haven't kept up so we don't have um the right to be part-time when you return from parental leave we still don't have 10 days um paid family domestic violence leave 
uh, we still don't have um, accessible, affordable, free childcare. Mm. Um, they're pretty big areas of social policy that need to um, support the outcomes for women and the ability for women to work um, and all the other areas about retirement outcomes for women. You have to give them all the steps to get to the retirement outcome um, prospects in social housing and housing in general, but you need to um, you need to actually design it in. And, and this is where they've failed so categorically. Um, as I, it's a complete up yours to women, really. I, I am gobsmacked how bad I was is. shocked. I mean, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've Everyone knows my um, my political affiliation and bias, but I, you know, I expect uh, that our political leaders will um, engage with the data and the evidence and build strategies around it. Um, I would not have been surprised if they did a, a bit of, you know, the kind of uh, playbook on how to deal with a recession, but mm. as well as invested in the particular sectors that were most affected. Um, yeah made sure the support went to those sectors. But that just didn't happen. It was like they were completely blind to the gendered impact of this, uh, this economic disaster. And, and the impact on those women will be felt for many, many generations to come. It's, you know, it's, it's well, it's a, in my view, it's a disgrace. And the confrontation that they were just so affronted that someone, everyone, everyone, particularly <laughs> on Twitter, everyone called them on it. Um, everyone said this, this just the policy yeah. design settings are wrong and you are not addressing the impact of COVID. And they took offence to that. They didn't say, okay, let's go back to the drawing board and explore it. And today, you know, driving into work and hearing the latest um, announcement on apprenticeships. I'm like, really? That's where we're putting the money. Not housing, yeah. not anything. It's apprenticeships again, which will be as much as we can try and encourage women into various sectors. Um, and I'm talking about some of the hospitality apprenticeships. But at the end of the day, it's gendered. More men will go into apprenticeships than women. So why do we keep doing that? Yeah, it's um, you know, I, well, and and you know, I I too heard from many organisations, and they were not split left right. Many organisations, some of which would have been absolutely uh, supporters of the Conservative government, um, and they were all saying the same thing. So it, it really, it, it you know. As I said, I think it's a disgrace. Um, but if we turn our minds back to uh, the areas of of, um, of of where we can affect uh, some change, childcare. Let's talk about that, Julia. You just touched on that. Like, what? How do we? How do we create the environment uh, for free and affordable? Sorry, free and accessible childcare, so that everyone can fully participate in the labour market. It's um, it's such a no-brainer our free and affordable childcare, that it's kind of um, laughable that we're not there yet. Um, and I think the Labor Party's announcement is a fantastic one. I think we also need to be mindful of the care that exists outside the formal care sector. So for a lot of our members who are working late nights, Saturdays, weekends, yeah. the childcare system, as in its current construct, family daycare might be slightly different, but the, the, current, the current of sort of seven till six um, it isn't a solution for them to participate in the workforce. So we still have to make sure our childcare uh, policy is inclusive and, and gives options to people across the board because retail won't be reducing its um, trade hours. It only gets bigger. Um, so I think it's such an important indicator. Um, and if you look around the world about where women's workforce participation uh, and also the education aspect of childcare, um, when we're talking about how important that is, for early um, childhood development as well. I think they're two really important areas that we should be investing in. So I, I'm sort of, and I really thought this government 
um, when they did announce, I think it was the October, I think there was lots of rumours that they were going to do something mm. on childcare and they didn't. They didn't do a thing. So uh, I think that's a huge one for me. Childcare is really important, really important. Well, we saw the uptick uh, when childcare was free, actually, yes. during COVID yeah. and, and how uh, appreciated uh, and used it was at that moment in time. Um, I was I was disappointed that that was not extended upon. I mean, as we talk about childcare too, I think it's really important we talk about the um, the wages of our childcare educators and the conditions that they that they work in. Um, again, it's always been a mystery to me that you know a, a sector that is very valuable that looks after our most precious resources, our little children, uh, yet they are so poorly paid themselves. Um, when we're thinking about how we fix the childcare sector really got to make sure that we're also addressing the the wages and conditions of our childcare educators. Well, I think liberty it's care in general, isn't it? Any care profession has a Yeah. That's low such wages, a good point. Age care, uh, nursing, yeah, yep. sort of anything with the word care in it, uh, you'll just take a 50% cut to your wages. Um so I think that narrative has to change as well. So um it's interesting I think one of the the talking points was it starts you know the gender pay gap starts with pocket money I actually think it starts with the unequal distribution of household chores yeah yeah <laughs> you know, yeah then you yeah. might get pocket money um, for doing the chores but it's got to be um, a bigger conversation about care and the value of care and uh, who is doing the care and how we move that um, to a more equal distribution of care um, which does require again access to childcare will help uh, men also free up I think uh, or, or give them better choices as around what they can do as well. If you ask a lot of um, male friends my age with kids and younger kids, going to their employer and saying, I want flexible work, it's just not, it's not possible. Yeah. So we still don't have that side of the equation sorted out. And a lot of uh, my no. male friends want that um, option. I just want to work four days. Uh, and then they're not in a position even to put their hand up about it. So it's really um, interesting. We have to address that, yeah. I think, when we're talking about uh, care in general and who actually gets to do uh, be a carer, a primary carer. It's such a good point. Um, uh, there's a study that came out recently that said exactly that, that, you know, we do not, um, we, well, in fact, we penalise men that ask for flexible work arrangements. Just not, not something. from the top, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be part of your overall strategy, right? That... part-time for women. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Liv, 10 years ago in Parliament, my first year in Parliament, I talked about a study that had been released around the hours of uh, housework and care and responsibility that men and women do, the latest stats. And I actually um, did a statement in the Parliament where it just, just happened that that hour I was in the Parliament, it just was all female members on both sides that had been rusted on, wasn't done purposely. Um, so when I asked the question, you know, who did a load of washing before they came to work this morning? Who has to worry about dinner? All of a sudden, this support erupted in the chamber. Like, and I had, you know, liberal women clapping and whooping and, and saying, <laughs> yes, that's us, we did that. And it was the most amazing moment I felt in, in Parliament that there was, a you know, a united view about women doing more than uh, our counterparts, but I think things have changed because just recently after the last election I heard um, a, a Liberal man and a Labor man chatting while they were having their waiting for their coffees and one said, oh, yeah, I've just decided that every second Friday I'm going to work from home, and this is before COVID, um, I'm, so I can be with my toddler. 
And the other one said, yeah, I'm going to do the same. You know, like that is not a conversation I would have heard 10, 10 years ago, which is. Will they put the washing pr- on now? <laughs> I might be stretching it. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, yeah, take them to the park but, uh, or take them out for a coffee. But it is, uh, it is uh, a change, I think, too, with COVID. And if you hear, you know, I've had lots of conversations with uh, women who are in, in similar positions to me as in, in working in an office and um, tend to travel a lot and all those things and just the impact COVID's had on being working from home. And how many of us talk about it just gives you an opportunity to put the washing on, which seems to yeah. be... You know, in and out, opportunity to hang the clothes on the line and all those things that you pile up, which just adds to the mental load that women carry. But um, it is, you know, that part of um, care still has to come with the household responsibilities of care. Absolutely. I mean, you know, well, well, we talk, we've been talking about culture, but, you know, we we are setting um, uh, expectations, sending signals to our sons and daughters from the moment they turn up. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know, then I mean, this is something that we have to change in our households as well, don't we? And as, um, as feminists, as leaders, you know, you want to think about, well, how do I change that conversation at the same time as making sure that the washing actually is getting done, that we are eating dinner, that there is food in the fridge, because my life is so quick and busy, I need to make sure all that stuff is still happening. Um, so it's a, it's a real challenge. Um but uh, but absolutely, I mean, we are we are responsible for setting the expectations, the behaviours, programming our precious little munchkins about what the roles of the different genders are from the moment they start watching us. Um, that conversation about care is so um, critical too. You know, with the Aged Care Royal Commission having just handed down its recommendations and the great need for huge investment, which would benefit all of us. Um, you know, most people who have interacted with the aged care sector have some experience uh, that has not matched their expectations of what it would be, some small, some large. Um, but we have a very poorly paid and remunerated sector. We saw actually as we were facing into COVID that um, there were many workers in that uh, sector who had multiple jobs and were moving around uh, which caused real problems from a health perspective as we were trying to deal with the pandemic, uh, but really brought home the, the precarious nature of employment in that sector. But, you know, I just I look at those recommendations and I think, again, well, that's an obvious area for us to invest in the wages and conditions of our workers and to make that a very prestigious job. It's a really important job looking after our elderly Australians. Um, and yet we... Uh, we pay pittance and we treat our workers abysmally. And then we're surprised that the conditions uh, for the residents are not as great as we would like. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for progressive taxation and I'm very happy for my taxes to be spent on the wages of our caring workforce. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good time to talk about the gender pay gap and there's lots of things that emerge from the gender pay gap, but one of those things that emerge is how we remunerate different sectors differently. And, you know, guess what? It tends to split uh, based on whether it's female-dominated to be a poorly paid workforce or it's male-dominated to be a better paid workforce. How do we fix some of these bigger issues in our society? Well, I think we need to be able to address the historical undervaluation. We need to go back and, and look at the pinning of how it was pinned to a certain, you know, the C10 rate if you going to get technical but it's it's that award system um it's a long history to that award system is it fit for purpose does it represent the way um work is performed no i don't think it does um 
because it has set up a historical pinning that's incorrect, that doesn't represent the work that people do. So we have to find a way to address that. And I also think our Fair Work Act needs to be able to address um, uh, the, the disparity in wages better because it doesn't. It just doesn't allow for it to happen there. Such complex cases, unions have to run them. It costs a lot of their members money to do that. Uh, and the outcomes, you know, you don't sort of get the outcome that um, everyone is striving for. It's such a difficult area when kind of we all recognise that the rates were set too low back in 1981. Mm. So how do we go back and address that? We need a forum to be able to actually talk about the fact that it doesn't look right. Yeah. And I think the other part of the puzzle is actually addressing job insecurity is a huge one, particularly in these sectors. Aged care is just terrible in terms of permanent employment. Um, I know quite a few women that work in the sector and um, they, you know, if they had an opportunity to get out, they would. They just say that the rates of pay are so low and there is no security. Um, many of them have only guaranteed a day a week, but they get called, you know, six days a week. Um, but that's not consistent, you know, uh, work for them. And, of course, you can't get a home loan. You can't even get a car, car loan, um, you know, based on only one day a week permanency, mm. yeah, and, yeah, and low wages. Mm. And I think we've set up the system with the NDIS to do that same model, which is mm. insecure work, and we've ended up in a, the disability sector with the same problem as well. So, it's, yeah, I think that's insecure work is it's just such a big problem. We do need we need an overhaul of that. Nat, when you were um, uh, the IR minister, uh, you you um, introduced some gender pay principles uh, that underpinned the bargaining for the public sector, um, which yeah. um, which emerged. Um, um, you know, I know about them because they emerged from the Equal Workplaces Advisory Council and the collaborative work done uh, with unions, employers, and the like as we uh, made those recommendations to you. Um, it's very early days, uh, but they were modelled on the New Zealand system where we have seen some successes yep. in, um, well, with aged care workers actually coming forward and talking about the undervaluing of the care sector. Um, I don't know if you've got any early thoughts about, uh, I mean, you're no longer the minister in that area, but any early thoughts about either how they're working or, or what you even thought as you saw these recommendations and why you thought they were important to uh, to bring into effect? Oh, I think... Um no one should underestimate that when a government takes on um, a pretty significant change with their cultural approach to equality through EBA negotiations or through any process, um, whether it be procurement or, or um, the way that our kind of public service is structured, we shouldn't underestimate that those changes then have a huge flow-on effect into the private sector. Mm. Um, even just making the change of the um, 10 days paid leave for family violence uh, leave, we saw that then flow on into um, quite a few um, private sector EBAs because it set a standard and um, I, I don't think we can underestimate how quickly that flows on, uh, that standard, and, yep. and certainly with... Um, gender equality principles um, with commitments um, to through an EBA process, that starts to set the standard in that sector um, around what is, you know, expected, acceptable um, in that sector. And, and the state is, the, you know, in, in most states, the state is the biggest single employer in the state. Yeah. So yeah. when the single biggest employer makes the commitment um, 
to change, to cultural change, and then enacts it in in, a, in an agreement like an MOU or in an EBA, then that yep. that is really kind of um, putting your money where your mouth is in terms of making that change. I I felt like one of the biggest changes we've made as a government um, for women in the workforce uh, was actually uh, making a commitment in our EBA, teachers EBA, uh, maybe three or four years ago now, um, in regards to permanent employment for um, part-time casual staff working in schools. That EBA then delivered 5,000 permanent full-time jobs um, for women, and it was about it was about 90% women in those roles um, across the state. So that was a massive change, um, which quite frankly did not cost government a lot to yep. do yep. Um, because we were utilising uh, this workforce, but we weren't giving them the security that they needed to, yep. to yep. have gender equality. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, it, that didn't cost very much, but it meant it would have meant a profound amount to the workers that, that were the beneficiaries of that, and deservedly so. They'd well and truly earned that right. So, yeah. I'm, I'm sure the Treasurer would say it cost a lot financially, <laughs> but, you know, in the scheme of things, I think it was uh, a very small investment in the scheme of things for some fantastic outcomes. And, you know, even through COVID, all of those people have, manage to you know keep a permanent job yeah 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 and julia um when we talk about the gender pay gap i know you've done a lot of work on uh retirement savings and and the gender pay gap in retirement how's that tracking are we making any progress have we got any reason to hope that we're going to start to close that gap uh look i think um the, the attack on super from this federal government is, is even more uh, concerning because they're really keen to unpack retirement savings for everyone. Um, but we have to make some key structural reforms on uh, the trajectory of women's lives and how we need to. One, we have to have superannuation on parental leave. We did some focus groups of some young women recently and when we said you don't get paid superannuation on parental leave, they said, what? They couldn't understand. I'm like, yes, it's about the only form of leave that you don't get paid um, your yeah. superannuation on, which happens to be a leave that um, impacts more women than men. Uh, so we've got to fix that. We have to get rid of the 450 cap. That's a really yep. important one. And I think in, again, aged care sectors, um, we've been working with the ANMF and the ASU. Um, and again, these minimum contracts that people are on, multiple jobs that they're on, they can work 30 hours a week, but don't get super on any of their jobs because they fall below the 450 threshold. So we yeah. have to stop that one. That's a really important one. We need um, a longer period of parental leave. I'm, I'm all for 52 weeks of paid parental leave for um, carers. And mm. that's, an, I think, an important one to just give people some financial security. And we need to address, um, I think, childcare Free and accessible childcare will help workforce participation so women have genuine choices and can lift their incomes because they have care available that's quality and affordable and, um, and accessible to them. So there's, there's so many pillars when you watch the life, uh, the, the sort of lifeline of where you need to intervene and, yeah. and the changes we need to make um, across the board. It's not one policy fix on super. It's got to be a suite of policy fixes. And I think super on every dollar for every worker is probably how I best describe it um, because I think that's what's needed to, if we're going to yeah. expect proper retirement outcomes for women. And I think we need to make proactive interventions where women are falling behind to um, sort of up up their um, 
retirement savings at key points in their life if we're not hitting all the other um, structural policy design changes we need. There's a lot yeah. of work in that area. <laughs> There's a lot. Well, but it's on all of us, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, how how is it in the interests of any of us if we see increasing homelessness amongst women that have worked a full life uh, but have not been paid for all their hours of work yeah. uh, in retirement? I mean, I just, I regard it as just, you know, the most appalling outcome for a civil society if we are um, treating women uh, with that lack of dignity and respect in their retirement years. Um, you know, we've really, this is, this is urgent. We've got to fix this yeah. um, because, uh, you know, it's it's structural issues that have been in place for many, many years that have seen where women are today and that gap in retirement savings today. But, you know, it's not going to change unless we take deliberate action mm. to fix it for tomorrow's retirees. And I think, look, sometimes a lot of the people we've been engaging with, politicians at the federal level, go, yeah, that's outrageous. And like don't just acknowledge it for me what are you going to do about it um they yep. need to do something everyone knows the 450 needs to go yeah they've known it for years but they don't do anything so and to me it's a, you know it's a really um a simple kind of important one and i think super on parental leave again that's a no-brainer a lot of our employers already do it so that's where this culture but set it from the top federal government needs to start setting the culture and tone that they um they want to see achieved because they're not and they're falling behind you know, even the corporates, which is yeah, and I think the other the other thing we're missing at a federal level as well is we have no line of sight of the number of women that get made redundant or are fired during um, parental leave um, and also long service leave. There's a phenomenon now when women take their long service leave that they find when they come back that there isn't a role for them, um, and unfortunately, the Fair Work Commission doesn't measure or doesn't make publicly available and then, you know, the redundancy rates or the, the unfair dismissals um, linked to maternity, paternity leave or um, long service leave. And I think there's a real gendered um, discrimination that's going on there. And I think that needs to be publicly reported mm. um, through the, the Fair Work Commissions. Or even yeah. in the Regia reports where you've got to self-report about yeah. your redundancies. Yeah, um, that that to our experience is the same, absolutely, Natalie. On um, particularly return from parental leave. Yeah, yeah. and that, I even you, had it in my social circle. So many of uh, oh. mine you did not return to their job, um, and if you know, and then or were offered a casual opportunity, so the full time work down to casual, and then not the same job. Pretty stark. Just still, you know, every story makes my blood boil. Mm. Um, and that you hit on this issue earlier, but something else that we've really got to be vigilant about is this early access to super and the agenda being run by the federal government at the moment, which I just think is terrible, but uh, will have a profound impact on women in particular. And we're already hearing stories about women who felt so desperate during COVID that they sought early access to their super. But, you know, that, how's that going to fix the problem down the road? It's only going to make it worse, not better. Um, so we've got to do a lot more now to support women, uh, not only about their, their earnings today, but their retirement savings for tomorrow. I think you also have to have a realistic conversation about um, the narrative of choice, which to me is, um, it drives me mad, uh, yeah. that, that women have these choices, choice, 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 and, and you hear it all the time. Women should be able to choose if they want to take their money now or later. Talk to a whole lot of women, particularly in their elder years, will tell you they didn't have a choice. It's food on the table. It's yeah. a school yeah. uniform. It's um, shoes. It's um, sport. It's, it's whatever, but it's not a choice. So stop telling women they've got choices because 
actually they don't. Um, they don't have choices around care options. They don't have choices around permanent jobs. They don't have choices about good wages. It's so let's be realistic when we talk this choice narrative that is just being bandied about um, so freely and it just doesn't represent really one, the economic structure, which is completely skewed against choices for women. And yes. We've got to fix that. So um, it just, it's one of my bugbears is about choice, choices for women. <laughs> oh, um, it's not a choice. No, yeah. it's a really good point. No, absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I could keep talking about this issue with you two all day, but I am conscious that we are going to have to wrap this up. So uh, let's, uh, let's pretend we can fast forward 12 months and we meet again next International Women's Day. Uh, what will be different? What will have changed? Um, what are you trying to uh, change? And what do you want the listeners to help you with? Uh, Julia, will I start with you? Okay. Um, hmm. I think if we could change one thing, it would be a gender impact analysis of policy. I think that would just be such a big start um, that is needed for people to understand the impact. If you did that analysis, you'd then be more challenged as to why you haven't addressed it um, because we know it's going to be there. So I, I, that would be um, a, a key area for me is we've just got to start talking about the gendered impact of policy design and a, and a commitment that that is um, a policy doesn't get through without that gender impact statement. Yep. And, and therefore, it's that transparency point you talked about earlier, Liberty, because it, mm. it just shows that, okay, we, we've identified that the policy's got this flaw and what are we doing about it? Oh, nothing. So I think it just does drive the conversation then if we have a gender impact um, analysis and we need more women in, high, in, in positions. Yeah. Power, that, that's the other one. Totally. Nat? Oh, I think if this time next year... As a Victorian, we've got a, um, a sweeping kind of um, agenda around tackling workplace sexual harassment. It's not just legislative, but it's um, preventative as well. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be something I'd be really proud to see in place. Um, I think Respect Victoria do a fantastic job. They've done a power of work in the last 12 months around targeting um, violence against um older Victorians and in the main that is women. Um, they've got a lot more to say in this space and I'm, I'm looking forward to them working with us as a government around the prevention work. Um, but really having a, a system in place where every woman in every workplace knows that if she experiences discrimination or harassment that she can report it and keep her job and feel safe, if that's something we can achieve. I mean, 12 months... <laughs> I hope so. At least have the structure in place is is um, is something um, I would love to see. I'm personally working on a, a whole new um, system for victim support, and we know that victims of crime are predominantly um, mm. women in the in the um, family violence space and sexual harassment space. Having a new system in place where these women don't have to relive and re-prosecute what happened to them after they've been through the legal system in order to get some ongoing financial support or service support. So that's um, a challenge for me in the next 12 months uh, in this space. Oh, well, look, uh, I, I want to have a conversation with you both in 12 months' time and see <laughs> see how we went. My message for the listeners is if you want to see these things happen, uh, then let's not lose the momentum. Uh, the only way, as we all know, that change happens is that we've got to act collectively we've got to act together and we've got to demand that change and uh, when we're doing that uh, then we are an unstoppable force so you know there's been some real trauma for uh, for all of us over the last months as we've observed 
these conversations and, and the allegations of the terrible events that have occurred. Um, and, you know, and, and I want to, you know, wrap my arms around every single woman that's um, brought their story forward and, and tell them that we're with them. Uh, and from that, if there is a silver lining, it is that we we take that and that we make things better for everybody else. And to do that, we've got to act together. Thank you so much, Julia and Nat. I've loved this conversation. Thank you, Stephen, for giving us the opportunity to have a, a chat. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for uh, listening today. Thanks, Liv. We'll, uh, we'll chat again in 12 months' time.